HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Brian. Heather, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Superb. Oh, it is a beautiful day here in Brooklyn. We are like 90 degrees and sunny. It's about 51 <laughs> in Alameda, but it's sunny. What is going on with that? I don't know. But it's the coastal influence, I guess. But I'll take it. It's a beautiful day. Definitely, indeed. So we've got a good farm report coming up today. Yeah, I'm excited um, for today's report. I mean... Well, Looking for you, at, especially um, with Mr. Alec Bradford, uh, that must be interesting to you to hear about him and uh, his operation down in uh, Virginia, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I have a, my uh, educational background's in Greek and Roman archaeology. Huh, and uh, the white cattle are mythical throughout ancient mythology. Um, and the white cattle, actually, that, that the ancient park, uh, or ancient white park cattle that um, they're raising down there in Virginia, have antecedents um, in uh, the ancient Roman world. And one of the theories about those, the British white cattle is that uh, they were brought to the United Kingdom by the Romans about 60 years uh, before Common Era. And uh, that's one theory. Well, then, as with all these things, there are many theories. Oh, definitely. Well, just by looking at them, you could tell they almost seem like a mythical creature just by their, you know, um, the breed themselves. That's what they look like. Yeah, Unlike it was anything pretty else. fascinating just looking at um, looking at some ancient depictions of cattle, and you do see the cattle skulls a lot of times um, in in Roman, especially um, sculpture, have horns like like the ancient. Park, ancient white park cattle. So it's pretty cool. I mean, it really does look like something pretty primeval. Definitely. And have you had a chance to taste that ancient white park? Not yet. I'll tell you what, though. I'd sure like to. We'll figure um, out a way to make that happen for sure. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe I can hook some up when I'm out in New York in June. But, yeah, um, that would be great if you guys could meet. Yeah, that would be really cool. I think that one of the fascinating things about our two guests today uh, Dave Metzger and Alec Bradford. Doug is Metzger, that, Doug Metzger, yes. Uh, Doug Metzger, sorry. Um, is that uh, they're raising, you know, heritage breeds. And there's a lot of stuff going on right now um, with our food supply and the industrialization of proteins. And, and as recent events with swine flu show, um, animals can be vectors for all sorts of diseases and and in in some of the industrialized confined situations, the the wrong disease could wipe out the entire 
food chain. Um, so the one of the things that's uh, very important about heritage breeds, in my mind, is that we're increasing the genetic diversity in, in terms of our livestock Keeping population. biodiversity alive in the food supply. I don't that's think right. anything can be more important than that. No, and I think that, you know, it's... Uh, it's all these events. I mean, this this summer in 2008, the you know six dollar corn and five dollar diesel pushed the issue about grass fed beef in in a lot of places, and certainly um, alternative production and in other kinds of uh, livestock and poultry. And um, I've always been concerned about the headlong march toward monoculture, and so you know I, I think it's very fitting today to have uh, Mr. Metzger and Bradford on the show. Yes, um, and I definitely look forward to having people listen a little bit about uh, Alec and his operation and see how it's similar to Hearst Ranch's operation with the grass-fed on the east and west coast of our country. Hearst rocks. You rock, Brian. You're oh. number one. Wow, double fierce. I'm double fierce today. You know it. So thank you um, so much for taking the time out of your Sunday to introduce our farm report. Hey, it's my pleasure as always, and I wish you guys the best, and you sound great today, as right. always. Thank you. Thank you okay. so much for listening, and, you know, okay. we're a big fan, and you're a big fan of ours, and we will be talking to you real soon. Okay. Happy trails. Hi, and welcome to the Heritage Radio Network Farm Report. We're broadcasting here on a Sunday, April 26th, and it's a beautiful day in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we're here with Alec Bradford from Leaping Waters Farm in Shawville, Virginia. And as we usually do here with the Farm Report, we're going to ask him 20 pertinent questions and hear from one of America's leading farmers. How are you, Alec? Hey, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us here today on the Farm Report. Yeah, sure. So we just want to get a basic idea of what you do over at Leaping Waters, what, what, what you farm, and what your duties are as the head farmer. Okay. Um, we uh, we run a 325-acre um, pastured beef, dairy, and poultry operation. Um, <clears throat> we raise a rare breed of cattle called Ancient White Park cattle. There's uh, about 500 of these animals in the United States. There's probably 1,200 worldwide. We have um, about 80 head of cattle right now. We have large black pigs, which... They're also a rare breed. They're a British pig. They get to be about 600 pounds. And um, we raise the pigs and the cows together on grass down by the river in uh, in southwest Virginia. And um, after the pigs and the cows get off the grass, we take chicken tractors and run the chickens over the top of where the cows and pigs have been in order to refine the soil and get some of the parasitic bugs out. And then we take all the meat that we process here and we sell it to uh, local restaurants. We distribute it through Heritage Foods and um, and then we give some away to the uh, food banks locally to try to get some of the more less fortunate people to uh, get some good food as well. Wow, well it sounds pristine down there. Just the name of the farm conjures up some vivid imagery here. What's uh, What's the history of this land? Uh, well, it, going back to way back, it was a Cherokee hunting ground. We've, uh, my son and I have found quite a few arrowheads and spearheads up in the high fields and in the forest. Huh. Um, 
and the Shawnee Indians also came through here. We're very close to where Laura Ingalls was kidnapped in the 1600s or 1700s um, and taken back to Ohio. But for the most part, it was Cherokee land. Um, after the Civil or after the Revolutionary War, pretty much all of Montgomery County, Virginia, was given to a colonel in the Revolution named George Hancock, who uh, was. <clears throat> Buried not too far from here in a tomb, he was buried standing up so that he could watch his slaves on this plantation uh, after he died. <clears throat> it's a local legend, but you can go and see his bones still, actually. Um, after that, after the Civil War, the, the plantation was broken up into really small tracks, and, um, and there was a, a couple of hotels were put in down here. We have a lot of mineral springs that um, northern, the wealthy northern folk were would use to come down in the, in the hot summers and vacation and bathe in the springs and play a little pasture golf. And, and I guess when the, probably the 1930s was the last of the hotels burned down. And since then, it's pretty much gone into a state of disrepair. The family we bought it from had had the land in their family for 200 years, but they, uh, they hadn't taken really a whole lot of care of it in the last 40 or 50. It was pretty much a junkyard when we got it. We spent maybe a year just cleaning it up. And uh, but it is it's prime land. It's it's about 120 acres of it. it's just perfect bottom land. It's all the soil is like cake batter. It's solid black. It's beautiful. How'd you become connected to this part of the world? <clears throat> I was born in Southern Appalachia, in Tennessee, just a little south of here. That's where I grew up. Um, I moved all over the place before we actually bought this farm. I I, um, I lived abroad for a little while. I lived out west. I, I lived in the city actually for a couple of years, and I met my wife, and um, she decided that we needed to farm, and, and I'd been working on a farm when I was a kid, up until I was 19, so it seemed pretty pretty logical for me to come back. Um, I don't know, the mountains around here, they leave a mark on you if you spend any, any amount of time, especially in your childhood. They, they throw a pretty long shadow, so it wasn't too hard of a decision to, to move back. Huh. Well, you seem to have a very poetic way about speaking about the land you're connected to. Um, we love it. So to get to, to less <clears throat> sort of ethereal talk, if you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? Um, that's rather complicated. I don't really have a whole lot of use for the government in my operation. Um, <laughs> I, it seems like a farmer of my size, we're not, we're not considered big ag, so we have... If we want to sell meat directly to the consumer, well, there's a whole lot of hoops to jump through. Um, but I realize that given the size of <clears throat> big agriculture and the number of people that we feed in the United States, that uh, we have to have some government regulation. But I guess if I had to choose one thing, I'd probably get rid of the uh, current standards for organic certification. I think we should probably start over with uh, more focus being placed on making a solid connection between farmers and consumers. Right now, the standards we have serve as a vehicle mostly for retailers to push more boxed meat through, um, which effectively lowers the standards of everyone that, that wants to buy like quality food. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you need to personally know your farmer and have him be certified, but it helps. And I guess you should have a real sense of what their practices are, at least, if you're going to get involved in the food movement. Uh-huh. Now, what, 
what are the members of your production chain that you interact with most, and which are most important to your survival? Uh, the abattoir is most important to my survival. If, uh, I, 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 raise, I raise these animals. I try to get them you know, as close to perfect as I can over a two-year period. And, and if I take it to a slaughterhouse who does shoddy work, they can, they can destroy all my work within 30 seconds. So if I, if I can't find somebody who can properly process the beef, treat it humanely, label it well, cut it well so it looks good, then I'm, I'm out of business pretty quick. So speaking of maintaining the taste sort of that you've, that you've um, fostered in your meats, what are the taste pro- profiles unique to these foods that you raise? Well, with the white park cattle, they're, they're an interesting, they're a very special animal. They... They were um, <clears throat> they were the cattle of the king, of the royalty of Britain for about 800 years. Only royalty could eat them, and um, and I guess we don't have to do too much with them. We we were lucky enough to uh, to just find the breed. I bought it really because of its looks and its condition, not really its taste as much. And uh, over time, after we after we slaughtered our first animal and tested it out ourselves, we found that they have they have a unique ability to absorb all the grasses that they, all the different grasses and, and forage that they consume. You can you can taste the wild chives and some of the in the brush, the, the grassiness of the meat inside in the meat without it being overwhelmingly gamey or so. It's it's truly the best beef I think on the planet. I think the Angus, the people that did the Angus marketing 30, 40 years ago, did a brilliant job, but I, they'd never heard of this breed. <clears throat> I'd be interested to compare them. Interesting. Um, what's the what's the what's the DNA that makes up the foundation for your food? DNA? You mean you mean the actual DNA, or do you mean like the model of the farm? The, the model of the farm. Um. Well, it's it's really about the the way the animals are treated and the grasses that they receive. We we we're my farm, we're grass fanatics. We plant all sorts of different legumes and grasses for the animals to forage on, for the cattle to forage on especially. And the, the pigs get a variety of vegetables planted specifically for them. Um, and beyond that, we really let nature you know, run its course. If the, uh, if the animals receive the best quality feed, of course, they're going to produce the best quality meat. And if they're happy and, you know, comfortable in their in their conditions and of course the less stress the best you know they'll gain more fat they won't they won't have as much adrenaline in them and and it basically makes for a you know tender more succulent meat so just as a human who might be stressed might actually display those symptoms physically an animal would do very much the same thing and those symptoms would then manifest themselves through the taste sure yeah if an animal has high adrenaline and it's and it's slaughtered. It, it, the meat will cut dark. It'll be tough. It'll taste terrible. Um, you can you can absolutely taste that. So it's not just sort of an it's not just sort of a an urban myth. No, no, no. It, it has every everything to do with the animals. I mean, I, I don't want to be anthropomorphic, but the emotional state of the animal. You know, if it's content, if it's yeah, if it's you know calving with ease and. Getting to get up and you know graze wherever it wants to have you know long, large meadows to run through that sort of thing. I mean, it certainly makes a difference in the quality of the food. 
Can you talk to us on a, on a biological and physiological level about how the mental well-being of an animal can actually manifest itself through the taste of the meat? Um, well, I'm not a doctor. My wife is. I, I, as far as the physiological sense, I can tell you that, you know, how the, like I said, about how the adrenaline in the, um, in the glands that's released, it gets into the bloodstream, of course, and, and, and it makes the animals <clears throat> tense. Um, and so it makes their muscle fiber more, um, more dense. And so when you have an animal that, that lives like that, I mean, if you think about it like a person with, you know, with a, I don't know, somebody you know that might have high stress levels or just can't really deal with their, you know, their day-to-day, they, they tend to clench their jaw, they tend to, you know, walk more stiffly. And if an animal acts like that, and you take that animal to the abattoir and they, you know, and they cut it, um, that meat's going to be tighter. That meat's going to be more tough, and and it's going to have this, well, this hormone, the adrenaline that's running through it, and that hormone has a, gives off a flavor, smell, and it's not, you know, it's not good. And I mean, most people would be surprised to find that that hormone's released in most, you know, in most of the animals that they're eating. If you're going to Kroger to buy a steak, nine times out of ten, that animal had a pretty rough last at least ten days of its life, and that was enough to destroy the meat. I find that fascinating. Um, so shifting to the future here, how will global weather patterns, do you think, affect the food you grow, if at all? And how are you going to adjust to those those changing patterns? Well, um, we're, in a, we're in a drought, actually. We've been in a drought for the last three years. We're, we're coming out of it right now, I think. We've had a lot of good wet weather lately. Um, I mean, I pay attention to to what the projections are for North America and, you know, the coming decades. Um, and really, they actually all look kind of positive to us, at least in the southern United States. I mean, it looks like we're going to have wetter, longer growing seasons. Um, and so, while it may be pretty bad for northern Europe and, you know, terrible for the west coast of Africa, um, it doesn't look too bad for the southeastern United States. You know, which is ironic and not, you know, kind of darkly funny. But, um, uh, you know, I think that we'll probably we'll probably do pretty well. Um, we don't have to make too many adjustments, except for <clears throat> except for trying to pump water, which is, I guess, it's my one my one uh, crux. I haven't figured out how to get a good solar pump. Uh, it's impossible to buy a mobile cheap solar pump. So, so in terms of a long long term outlook you think this farm's going to thrive? I think my farm, if my children, I have four of them, and I'm still quite young, if they want to, I think that they would have an opportunity to triple or quadruple its size. We have a, we have a very functional model, and we have a you know, high-quality landscape. There's, Speaking of yeah. your model, what's the maximum size for your model? Um, you know, I've, I, I was thinking about this, and I can't imagine that there is a maximum size, except, I mean, you're restricted by the size of your land, by the amount of land you can purchase. But there's a lot of fallow land out there, um, a lot of old farmers that are getting out of it that don't know what to do, and they can't sell it because they're too remote. Um, and the willingness to work it, which it's no joke. I mean, you work 18 hours a day in the sun in the summer, and it's, you know, that's tough. But, um you know the rewards are big, and uh, I think, I mean, I think that this model that we have here, we could we could export to 
certainly most of the southeast and the midwest and uh and I think it could function in perpetuity. So these 18-hour days that you put in, what are you doing most of the time? Like, what's what's your main activity on the farm? I know this may sound like such a simpleton's question, but for non-farmers, we don't really know what you what you spend your days doing. Uh, we like to talk a lot. We like to laugh at everybody else just to sit at a desk. <laughs> we like, uh, well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of crazy guys out here. There's working farms. Half the guys I know are completely nuts. Um. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not quite yet one of them. I haven't been at it long enough. But you spend that much time alone in the sun. You know, I have one employee, and uh, we raise three different three different types of animals plus horses for my wife. And I spend I spend my days checking water, checking pumps. We have a two acre garden that we are constantly working in um, when everything else is not going on. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have to deal with machinery which breaks and. Is not as heavy duty as it's advertised. Um, you know, we have in the spring we have calving season. In the summer we have to worry about haying and getting you know getting the hay in. In the fall we have to worry about cutting wood and getting the wood in for the winter. In the winter we get to relax a little bit. We get to sit back and put our feet up as long as it doesn't you know we don't have a heavy snowstorm or you know or some sort of uh, ice storms are really terrible but you know we're we're basically just sort of crouching down and preparing for whatever the weather might throw at us next and um who who are your top buyers um we're good half and half split between kind of the local we're near virginia tech and so we have um you know uh, a good supply of educated consumers who are affluent enough to you know, support us without us having to drop our prices to where we can't be profitable. Um, but we're not in such an nearby such an urban area where we can rely solely on on that sort of customer. So we're about you know we're split half and half between the private local foodie who wants you know wants to know exactly where their food is from and they can come by and see us and they often do they often you know come out and walk with me in the fields or pretend to work with me, you know, whatever. And um, and then the other half, of course, is the restaurant business. We sell between Charlotte and New York, um, you know, half of our half of our profits definitely go get in the truck and drive away. Well, I certainly know that Heritage Foods values your beef very much and your pork as well. Um, what is the five- or ten-year plan for your farm? And... Uh, where do you see it being before you pass it on to your to the next generation? Of uh, before I pass it on, it'll be paid for, which is the first thing. Most of the guys that start farming around here are in their 60s now, and their parents gave them their land, so they don't have mortgages. We have a heavy mortgage. Um, my wife, being a doctor, helps out with that, um, for sure. Uh Five or ten years from now, I expect that I would like us to be in a position where we have four or five restaurants that we support full stop everything they serve um, year-round, where we can deliver to them, you know, every week, which is, you know, that's kind of a tall order for a single farm to do, but I, I think that that's possible. We'll definitely be paying the mortgage. The farm will be paying the mortgage off, I would expect, in that time. And... um you know, I, I expect that the farm will expand naturally as I don't have any intent to 
artificially stop it from growing. Um, but at the same, you know, I want to I want to make sure that my breed of cattle gets spread further. There's only four farms in the country that have it right now, and um, I'd like to see it, you know, spreading locally pretty well. It's a it's a wonderful breed, um, you know, and I want to make sure that my kids actually have enough time to enjoy me too. So. I don't expect that I'm going to be on the cover of any, you know, package of meat in the grocery store or anything, but, you know, we plan to make a tidy living and, um, you know, and still have time for the kids. They're all young now. So, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, we'd like to thank you very much for, for taking the time to join us here, and I know you're one of Heritage, Heritage Foods' um, very much valued farmers, and... Um, we hope to have a long-standing relationship with you, and I know that people really enjoy your product. Yeah, so your hard work is really paying off, Alec. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this is the first of many farm reports that you'll join us on. Sounds good. All Take right, care. have a good day, and best of luck to you this summer. Okay. Bye. See you. And welcome to the Farm Report here on Sunday, April 26th. We're broadcasting from Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we will be talking to one of America's leading farmers today on the Farm Report again. We ask uh, the farmers 20 questions, and we get to put our finger on the pulse of the farming community in the United States. And today we have with us Doug Metzger of Metzger Farm. How are you, Doug? Pretty good. Great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where your farm is located, what the history of your land is, and how you became connected with this land? Well, <clears throat> we're at Seneca, Kansas, uh, actually a little town of Oneida, pretty much rural, a little town of 100. And uh, my grandfather, he bought this land that I'm on right now in 1921, and so that's just about 100 years ago. And the fellow that uh, had it before him... And uh, the one adjacent to it, where I actually am right now, they homesteaded the land in the 1880s. And uh, I grew up with the farming operation. My dad came from northwest Iowa and went to farm. He married my mother and went to farm with my grandfather. And my grandfather got old in the 40s, and, and I was born in 1938. And I went farming with my dad when I was 18 in 1956. So I've been here for near 60 years on this same same land, raising the same livestock, raising turkeys for 60 years, and cattle and hogs and milk cows. We were one of the only farms that are really diversified like all farms was back then. So that's that's basically my story. Sticking well, to it. Sounds a little bit more pristine than, uh, than Bushwick, Brooklyn. I envy you. Um, let's switch gears for a second and talk about farm laws. Um... If you could write one issue into farm law, what would it be? What would a, you mean a law that has something to do with farm issues? Yeah, if you could write one one farm issue into law, what would it be? Well, I would write something into law. Actually, there would be two of them. One of them would be that you couldn't have anybody come to the country and buy just an acre. They had to buy either 80 acres or nothing. So we wouldn't have this urbanization uh, taking away our farmland. And then the other one would be that that if you move to the country, even with your 80 acres, that you could not complain about the smell of the farmers on their farm because animals do smell, and, and farming is a smelly business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. And who are the members of your production chain that you interact with, with that are the most important to your survival? My wife and my son and my daughter. 
They're all involved in a farming operation here, and my son-in-law. And uh, basically, then I got help that helps us. And so that's that's what it takes. And we know that you raise Reese turkeys on your ranch. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the taste profiles of those turkeys and about the taste profiles of the other foods you raise? Well, these are the old-time breeds of turkeys, like been around for a hundred and some years, and and uh, the hogs that I raise are the Berkshire hogs and also the Tamworth. Uh, we we milk Jersey cows, which have been around a long time, and Holsteins too. So basically, you know, these animals are type of animals we we uh, used to raise the more commercial type hogs, but we don't today anymore because of the older. The older breeds, the meat does taste better. Okay, can you talk to me a little bit about how the stress of an animal affects the way the meat tastes? In other words, how you raise and how you how you pasture your animals, that ends up coming through in the quality and the taste of the meat. How so, biologically and physiologically speaking? Well, I guess it's probably because they got more more free land to, to roam around and, and uh, they aren't... Uh, you know, it's tight together and, and uh, probably stressed, you know. Uh, and how does the stress affect the way the meat tastes? How does the stress of an animal affect the way meat, meat tastes? Well, even even your cattle that you market for for beefsteak, why, if you uh, uh, take and, and don't uh, treat them nice, why, they'll you'll have what you call dark cutters and the meat doesn't taste as good. Mm-hmm. What's the DNA that makes up the foundation for your food? What, quite, just quite, what do you make, mean by that? DNA? Well, what's the, what's the, the, the sort of the, the heritage of these meats? Well, the Tamworth hog's been around for a long time, and the Berkshires have too. They're the older breeds that I had 50, 60 years ago, and, and then I started back in raising them here about 10 years ago. And, uh, and and the old bronze turkeys are made up, uh, you know, they're, they're, you might say the next step up from the wild turkeys is what they are. And um, what's the what's the, the five or ten year plan for this farm? Well, I kind of like keeping on just kind of how we've been here, probably uh, maybe increasing a little bit. And uh, maybe bringing my grandkids into it if they're interested to, the girl, she's thirteen, and, and she's she's interested in in this kind of stuff. So uh, that's that's basically what it is. Do you see yourself taking on any new kinds of pork or new kinds of of turkey? Well, probably not. Probably just like we got now. Okay. How will, how will changing global weather patterns affect the food you grow? I don't know, really. I don't quite myself believe these here changing weather patterns because we've had weather patterns that basically weather patterns change 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 have changed forever and and as the global warming deal I don't know if if there is such a thing because like this last winter we had terrible cold winter and you know it's it's just a cycle of nature from one one time to another and and just like we had dust bowls in the midwest and now they say they got the same thing in China I just read the other day that they got the same problem with the stuff like Central United States had in in the, in the 1930s, and and uh, uh, 
you know, we're we're a lot we're a lot uh, you might say cooler and wetter than we were in the 1930s and even the 50s. I was a young guy in the 50s, and in the 50s we had five years of droughts where where you thought that it was going to get hotter and hotter, and it finally ended and started raining. Basically, we had five years of of dry weather from 2000 until 2007 it was a little more than five years, but it wasn't as bad. But all of a sudden, it started raining, and it and it uh, in 2007 in in September, why we ended a five year drought by getting 15 inches of rain in two weeks. <clears throat> what about your farm? If anything keeps you up at night? Oh, I don't know the. I just kind of. <laughs> when I go to bed, I sleep. I really don't, don't, uh, don't uh, worry that terrible, terrible much about stuff. I think about it a lot in the daytime, but, but uh, you know, it, one of them deals you got to learn to live with it. And on the on a day to day level, what are some of the more problematic issues that occur on the farm? Oh, high costs of inputs today. That's that's one of the biggest ones, and then. Also, dealing with the government is a, is a big problem on on all your issues of different things that that you do and and uh, uh, that 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 is is basically the the one of the main things you know. What's the highest high you've had on the farm? Oh, back in two thousand three, while we had a, a year when we stopped the Canadian beef from coming in when they had that BSE scared. And uh, it, it raised the price of our cattle from seventy cents a pound to a dollar fifteen, and that made a guy feel pretty good because we had pretty good prices then, you know. But now, this last year here, uh, in the last six months, why things have kind of went with this economy, why everything's kind of went to the bad, and the Canadians are sending beef back in again. Not that I'm against the world trade, but but uh, we're Americans here, is what we are. And what interaction does your farm have with wildlife? Uh, one of the lows, I, I seen here where you had a question about the lows, and that was when our fuel went to $5 a gallon last year. <laughs> and money went out of my pocket so fast, you didn't know what happened. Uh, How much fuel does your farm consume? Oh, a tremendous amount of fuel. Anyway, you got to feed the cattle, feed the hogs, mix feed for the hogs. See, we don't buy the feed from the... Feed mills, we mix it our own, and and uh, so we know what ingredients get put in it, and know what's good, you know, and, and that makes us better livestock, better better uh, better meat, you know, better milk, stuff like that. Now, where did you learn how to how to feed these animals properly? Was it something that you tweaked by trial and error? Was it passed down from another farmer? Well, I. Uh, I studied agriculture in high school, and I, and I went to college a little bit, and I learned how to how to blend, how to mix feed, you might say, in nutrition, and, uh, and what it takes. And it's a never-ending process; things change, you know. So that's basically what it is. What do you feed your your hogs? Well, we feed our hogs corn and soybean meal, and uh, run some run them on pasture, you know. And and uh, winter time is the worst time of the year because it's it's hard on farm animals how so cold wet snowy you know it's it's just it's just it's just there is no grass growing and what's the maximum size for your model 
my farm mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's about as big as what you can get with with uh three family members members run it we got you know roughly we got a couple thousand acres of what we got which you might say is a one of the smaller family farms today there's a lot of them that are a lot bigger you know but basically they don't raise much livestock you know when you got all the different things i got when that's about about it you know if you had to <laughs> wildlife when you're saying about wildlife we got deer and we got wild turkeys and and uh Stuff like that, you know, we see them most every few days or every day sometimes. How does technology hurt or help you farm? I don't know. It uh, uh, it helps, but it, it all comes at a cost, you know. Technology does. It all comes at a cost. Both financial and in terms of? Well, just, you might say more more stress, but... But, uh, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> as you get bigger and try to produce some more stuff, why you got more problems. Sure, sure. Yeah. Who are your top buyers? Who are my buyers? Who are your top buyers? Well, Heritage Foods in, in New York buys both hogs and turkeys from me, and they get slaughtered in Missouri and, and some in Kansas here. And uh, my milk goes to a big dairy cooperative. Uh, I've looked into producing cheese, you know, and uh, uh, that way, but that takes a lot more work. And, uh, <clears throat> and my fatting cattle, they do go to Tyson's is where they go. And uh, uh, the hogs and the turkeys go to Heritage Foods. I sell some to another, some hogs to another outfit called Eden Natural Pork and there. So some of the cattle go go where? To Tyson's, to the Tyson plant. Okay. Up at Dennis, Dennis and Iowa is where they go, you know. Okay. And because of the particularities of your locale or trade, what is the secret to which only you have the key? What's the farming secret to which only you have the key? I don't know what to say about that. That's kind of a hard question to, to answer. You know, it's... Uh, it, uh, I don't know. I really don't know what to say. If if I hold any key to anything, I know, I know, uh, producing these here heritage foods, uh, the turkeys and the hogs, like uh, like we did fifty, sixty years ago. Uh, that was a, a key to, especially the turkeys back then. We made pretty good profits, and and then as years went by, where the turkeys got so commercialized that we didn't make any money anymore. And uh, then, then these heritage breeds because they taste better. Why? Uh, so I don't know if, if I hold a key onto that part or not, really. You know, but it's it's uh, it just takes a different. You got you got to have knowledge on how to raise these animals outside like that, which which uh, you know most of the big operations they don't know that anymore. If you call that a key, really. What what to you is American food? Me, what American food? Fried chicken and country ham and beef steak. <laughs> mm. And so are the, you're saying basically the meat's indigenous to this area. Well, yeah, to to, to America and and Turkey. Turkey's, you know, I've always liked turkey and uh, and 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 geese too. I, I I like goose and ducks too, really. And uh, that was my ones like my 
grandma and I I raised ducks when I was a little kid way back in the 1950s. So any of those, you know, any of those foods I call American. So you've had a farmer in you for quite some time. Oh yes, oh yes. All right, great. Well, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us here. We know that the people over at Heritage and our and our customers really, really do enjoy uh, the Metzger products, and we hope that we'll have you on for many times to come. Okay. Okay. We really appreciate that. Thank you, Doug. Okay. Have a nice one. Yep. Thank you. Bye.